episode 7 of Geek's Journey to Nature, a podcast at dudmanovy.cz. Hello and welcome to episode 7, A Geek's Journey to Nature. This is a podcast at dudmanovy.cz. It's recorded live thanks to Mumble, a server. Well, that's a bit of software, but it's the server that we connect to is provided by linuxbasics.com and we thank them greatly for their assistance and help in doing that. What have we got in store this week? Well, we had, we've got some updates, some news. We're going to talk a bit about technology, how this podcast is powered. Um, and that's really right. Let's just see if we can turn down that music. I thought I'd remixed it so it'd be quiet. So first, a few updates. Um, well, when I started to do this blog this morning, I had edited the show notes, um, kind of a guide what I would talk about, but I went back to log in to my WordPress blog and somehow, I'm not sure, I think maybe my wife or my son had tried to log in to somewhere else and the uh, admin, I, I rely upon Firefox to remember my passwords and for some reason, maybe someone had clicked on remember and the password had been incorrect, so... I had forgotten what the password was and had to, had to go and reset it through, uh, I think it's called MyPHPAdmin, where you can access the SQL database and, and change it. So I quickly found some instructions how to do that on our friend Google, and all is well and I got back in. Bit of a relief, really. Um, another note, I tried to use Ardor version 3. A new version came out instead of Ardor 2. Um, people have been getting excited about it, and uh, I thought it looked great. But um, when I installed it, it looked great, really nice colors and everything, but just pressing record and then stop seemed to crash the whole thing, so I can't be doing with that while I'm in the middle of trying to do something sensible, so I've reverted back to version 2. But I had to reset stuff up, and that was a bit of a pain, but it didn't take long, and it was good practice. Um, what other news and updates have we got? Let me look at my notes. Oh, yes, how cow Teresa Tresca still hasn't given birth. She's uh, out grazing today with her daughter and two friendly horses. And uh, every night I wake up in the middle of the night, go and check, have a look in the morning, go and check. Because uh, when she gives birth, it's good to go and help her a little bit, dry off the little calf. Um, because at night she is chained um, to one place where her food is, all the, all the cows are at night brought home. That um, I'm only worried that... You know, she gives birth, it comes out the back end and she can't she can't turn around enough to help dry the cow off and lick and what have you. So probably it's uh, no problem. I remember one year, I think the first year, about five years ago when she gave birth to her first son, who was called Albert, um, we woke up in the morning and I, I went out to have a look and there was there was this kind of big creature there and it looked strangely like our dog. At the time we had a Bernardine a Bernard Bernardine dog and um, he was massive and kind of a bit fluffy and, and silly looking. But the thing is, this this little bull, as we later found out, called Dalbert, he, he looked a different colour. But he was loping around and very active. I was very surprised. So I had to catch him first and then uh, get him to drink the milk and what have you. Um, but what else? What else happened? Well, my wife had a bit of a panic this week. 
Um, she was just going down past our house to her neighbours and on her way back with a bucket in hand to pick up some apples to give to the bull and the cows for the evening. Um, there was this, she was confronted by this big pig running towards her and uh, she had about 10 seconds of panic thinking, oh my God, how have our pigs escaped, you know, and now we've got, they're out on the road and we're going to have to try and herd them back. And then she realised it was the neighbour's pig. And um, although it's it's never nice when any animal escapes, if it's if you have animals and if some animal escapes and you realise it's not yours, it's such a relief because you know you're not responsible for for herding them back. Anyway, my wife quickly herded herded the big pig back up the road to the neighbour's house and knocked on their door. But uh, she wasn't so sure if she could herd the pig because he seemed very uh, stubborn and determined that he would go past. But um, all was well, and uh, the biggest relief is it wasn't our pigs. What else? We're rushing through the news here because I want to get on with the with with main feature story. Um, our, I've mentioned last week that we have I've selected a guinea pig to kind of do some uh, homebrew research here. Now, um, I don't want to mention his name specifically. Um, there was a bit of clash in times, and he actually fell asleep um, when I was going to chat with him yesterday. It, I mean, to give him credit, it was very late in the in the evening or early in the morning for him, and he'd had a long day, so um, we'll, we'll reschedule. But um, his initials are BB, and you would recognise him by the depth and the the um, silkiness of his voice. So we're hoping to get him back on, and we're going to be talking about healthy food. And hopefully, he has agreed to uh, to be a guinea pig for his benefit and ours and your benefit, so he can kind of do a little impromptu scientific study here. Um, it's, it's a scientific study that's been done thousands, if not millions, of, of times over, back in into the eons of time when people people weren't suffering from any health-related or societal-related problems, and we were all happy. But um, sometimes to believe the uh, repercussions of these simple changes in our lifestyle and what we eat and do, we need to retest them. It's, it's not always easy just to believe. Um, what we read or something and fair enough you know we we should test and collaborate our sec- sort of test and uh, collaborate if that's the word ourselves these things so that's what our friend bb has agreed to do and it's just a matter of catching him what else um i want to speak just at the end of this podcast briefly um about some more things with uh, debbie and ubuntu i outlined last week perhaps in a bit of a haphazard way um, my frustrations or discoveries with Ubuntu, the software distribution based on Debian. I have made a few more discoveries, whether they're completely accurate or whether I'm misunderstanding, um, that's definitely possible, but um, I thought I'd share and discuss them just briefly and I'll carry on my research. And without further ado, let's get on. So the feature for this episode is, and this is reading from my notes, 10 years compressed into perhaps an hour. How an English computer programmer ended up owning cows, horses, pigs, chickens and speaking Czech. What is Czech, you say? The Czech language. Not the English language, the Czech language. And after all this time, is still into tech, but is perhaps a little more discerning. What started it all 
is free and open source. Yes, that is absolutely true. Anyway, I hope that's kind of a primer. But what my intention was, if I'm sitting comfortably, maybe my wife will bring me a, a cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea, because I am English after all, is I wanted to outline what my experiences were and how I got to where I am. Um, I'm realizing as I do these podcasts, it is quite a difficult thing just to sit down and chat to yourself. And it's uh, along the way, it is my intention just not to unedit, to edit the things. So you can really hear what I'm like. And uh, I'm not going to spruce it up. You know, um, how it is is how it is. So how did it start? Well, um, as a young kid, I would call myself a young hacker because I like literally to hack things apart and look in them. I had a cupboard full of um, old electrical things or old things that our parents had thought they won't use anymore and we'd somehow got them, some old wireless or radios, um, some old bits of computery things or something. No, that's probably not true. Maybe there weren't so many computery things in those days. Anyway, I had a cupboard full, and uh, like all best hackers, I took them apart, and I, at the time, I didn't have the skill to put them back together again, so I hid them carefully at the back of the cupboard, so no one would notice, because <laughs> I know that my mum would be a little bit upset if she noticed that I'd destroyed things. Well, that, that was where it all started. I was big into technical Lego and Lego, and I love building and playing with things like that. I think I did, I did think that I would be an, an auto mechanic at some point, but I'm pretty pleased I'm not because um, I think the scope for comprehension is, is a little bit limited, really. Not um, to, to uh, diss on uh, auto mechanics, but I think computer technology and science is, is a wider field than just fixing or mending or expanding on cars, you know. But anyway, I slipped into, uh, like most kids, I'm not sure they really have any comprehension of what they want to do they've got the career services and they're just told they've got to pick something you know you've got to move on from school and go and do something so i i went to college and then to to university first in engineering and then in computer science graduated from computer science after the three or four years and uh, started to be a computer programmer but um, i was infected at university by the concept of open source slackware I think the, um, there was a, a teacher at my university called Bob Dickinson. Maybe I will get in contact with him again. The University of Hertfordshire in England. And uh, he was a big inspiration. Bit of a wacky, long-bearded, lin um, sort of open source Linuxy type. No insult, no insult meant Bob, but um, maybe it's a compliment, in fact. Anyway, he was big into Emacs and Slackware and all these kinds of things. And uh, the first distribution I tried was Slackware on 14 discs. You know, downloading them at the university because not many people or nobody had uh, internet at home back in, I think it was 96 or 98, something like that. And um, Slackware from 14 floppy disks. Go home, install it. Oh no, one of the discs is corrupt. You've got to drive back to the university, download. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I was infected by the bug of open source. Just the, the concept that you had the freedom. You know, you, you could look to see how something was implemented. You know, you could you could learn from what somebody else shared. You could see it running, you know, compiled. You could try to learn the whole... Comp 
basically you could learn if you had the interest and uh, if you didn't have the interest and but you wanted to have it to be something different you could make it into a commercial thing you could pay somebody to do it um, but you needed to give and pass on that freedom i.e. share your changes share your modifications share what it took for you to be able to build it you know the know-how the the uh, the gubbins behind what makes it do its thing so I, I went in and I, I worked at different places. I was quite fortunate in a way at uh, the jobs I took because I never really kept one for, for more than a year. I, I jumped, getting good pay pay rises on each jumper. I spent some time in the city of London working for like um, some financial banking consultancy. So I had some good experience being a, um, a consultant for the financial industry. Never a particularly good one, but it was interesting experience to see how they behave, you know, getting involved and seeing what salesmen are like and it was kind of behind the scenes a little bit. And then I worked for some more proprietary software, getting into Java. But along the way, you know, I was pretty fortunate. I had a lot of free time and uh, all those jobs had fast, most of those jobs had fast and uh, openly available internet access so you know in my spare time or any additional time i had i was able to to research and search to my heart's content you know google at that time had come into its own so um, it was really easy to find stuff and to be honest perhaps even now you know you could easily get overwhelmed with with any pursuit or study and that's exactly what i did I've got to thank all my employees uh, at the time. They didn't really notice what I was doing or even demand too much from me. But um, I was developing a problem all the time during those years, and that was pains in my hands and stress in my shoulders from the bad posture, the, the too many hours of staring at a screen, you know, a kind of tension and stress to do things quickly and get results, you know, um, in a performance-related way. Oh, my cup of tea has just come. Thank you very much. And you'll still try to prevent everyone from shouting out there, will you? Okay, great. Thank you. I gave them strict commands not to be shouting at all while I'm doing the podcast, but that's no guarantee. In a nice way, they shout. Sometimes angry, but uh, <laughs> it's a family after all. And we're human. Anyway... Um, I developed these uh, problems and pains in my hands. I had some injections. You know, I remember vividly going to the general purpose doctor, the GP in England, and the sort of incompetence that she she put an injection in one wrist, and you know she was pressing and pressing on the on the plunger at the top, and it just wouldn't go in. You know, it was so painful. She banged it in my arm, right in the, in in my wrist there, some cortisone or something injection, and. Um, and it wouldn't go, and it ended up that the, the needle was sort of blocked at the end, so she got a new needle injected. The bottom line was it made no difference. It still was hurting. I was having some sort of work paid for, massage and physiotherapy, and it was it was a pain that was more one of those nagging, constant pains, you know, and it creates a kind of frustration, and it, it just kicked me in the, the backside and reminded me, do I want to be doing this the whole of my life? Do I want to be sitting at a computer? Is it something what I, that I want to do? So uh, fairly quickly, based on all the free time I had, I started looking for more jobs. Um, a quick reminder, if you've just dipped into the middle of this podcast, you are listening to dudmanovi.cz and this is episode 7 
and we're just talking about uh, a geek's journey to nature. So uh, back on, where were we? Yeah, so I had these injections, it made no difference, and I started to look to see for some alternative. Um, I got interested in ecology and uh, eco eco villages. Um, I realized I needed to get away from the work and, and to find some, some place. So basically I found an eco village, um, which I felt some affinity with and seemed interesting. Um, the one I chose was, it was called Falcon Blanco in uh, Ibiza, Spain. Well, an island off of Spain. And I thought, that sounds cool, you know. Go and see what these people are about and learn something. So I arranged with my boss to uh, take a six-month break. In my mind, I didn't intend to come back. Maybe in his mind, he didn't intend to employ me. I don't know. But I think, I think that he probably did. And uh, actually, I did come back after six months. Or five months, and I worked there another two months just for some spending money doing a kind of different job. So I must thank those employees, they were really great. At Morant, in actually, they've changed their name recently, been bought out by another American company. So I don't know, they've probably changed their name again. But um, I rented my house, um, which you know, I had a mortgage on, and it was a bit stressful. But uh, I found uh, someone to rent it, put in it with an agency. And I packed all my bags and I travelled off. And uh, um, the experience I had for six months was quite phenomenal, to be honest, because um, it was a very special eco-village. Um, they had concepts of eco-ness, but um, it was really about facing your preconceptions and your, your sense of reality. And that might sound strange, but their their method of doing it was that their way of income was to go around the, the bins and the sort of dumpsters in on the island of Ibiza. They also had agreements with quite a few supermarkets in the main town where we would go and pick up the, the, disposed, the disposed wooden pallets because they were quite expensive to dispose of and to transport back to the mainland because, you know, there was this bottleneck of the ferry line. And uh, in exchange for picking up those pallets, they would, they would allow us to, and they would deliberately put into a certain place um, at the back of their shops for us all of the out-of-date products, you know, the cans and tins, damaged things. And we would go and pick up all of that, and then we'd go back to the, to the little um, sort of oasis, home away from home, and um, sort through it and take the things which we thought had more value for ourselves to eat, and uh, then sell, and we had there was a shop on the on the place, on the property, and people would come. So there'd be a lot of like washing powders, some food stuffs. It was it was amazing, really, the amount of stuff they threw out. The uh, the island of Ibiza is um, a big tourist resort and really quite affluent, but at the same time very wasteful. You know, you can go, you can get all your clothes and everything from the dumpsters. In fact, I remember one time our computer broke. It stopped working and, uh, you know, we just sat there in the evening and we, we put out the intention. It sounds a bit arty-farty or um, new agey. You know, I was going along with them at the time and, and I'm always trying to be open to new experiences. So throw myself into it and, and experience it. But, uh, you know, put the message out there that we need a new computer. And lo and behold, we get in the big dumpster diving pallet picking up van go off to um, Ibiza the next morning I think it was me and one of the girls and down by a dumpster was a computer we took it home 
you know, installed. I think it was XP at the time, and, and it worked perfectly. There was absolutely nothing wrong with it. I think it even had a monitor. So we got a monitor, um, a box, an old box with a PC in it, and it worked fine. So we had a new computer. Anyway, that was the, the island there. There was an associated problem. You know, the, the guy there, because you're picking up rubbish and a lot of it can seem useful, it's very tempting just to keep accumulating. And um, it slowly, quite slowly became apparent to me that even if we clear up all the rubbish that he had accumulated, he was accumulating more at a faster rate and it was an impossibility to keep up that there were literally pallets and pallets of of stuff and it was our job to to kind of sort for it or store it but then nothing was done with it you know so it became really a massive fire risk in the summer and uh often pallets then would be you know left out in the rain and quickly it would become kind of useful goods to it'd be transport transferred after a few rainings and washings to complete absolute rubbish that had been rained on and, and spoiled. So I, I realised it wasn't really a future, and I actually needed a place of my own. So so I was in charge, and and what I really wanted as community wasn't some kind of haphazard eco village. Is I wanted to find and found my own family. So. Um, I had a brother who'd already gone to the Czech Republic. He'd been sucked there by an au pair he'd fallen in love with in England. And we'd all met in a pub together and there were three, three Czech au pairs. And he'd very quickly narrowed out the one of them that he liked the best. And uh, he was a very fast mover. And um, likewise, he quit his job and moved to the Czech Republic before me. About three years, four years before me. Two years, three years maybe. Anyway, and uh, got married in the Czech Republic and um, built his own little house and has a nice life. Now he has three children, maybe four even actually, going very uh, big guns at it. Anyway, so... um, I thought it would be nice, you know, my twin brother is in the Czech Republic, why don't I at least come and see if it's not possible to settle in in some region which is closest, you know, trying to, you know, we're going to move far away from our parents, but why don't we at least, us brothers, us twins, stay kind of close, you know, so um, I came out, I found eco-villages and there's something called Woofing, um, it's called Willing Workers on Organic Farms, and if you're a young person looking for opportunities to travel on budget, and to maybe go to farms, maybe to, to help out in a more sort of open-air environment. You don't have to be necessarily a big ecologist, but it's a great way on a budget to travel and to meet different people, see different lifestyles. But So there's this thing called woofing, and um, I found a, a kind of position at a place in uh, Czech Republic near Olomolts, which isn't actually far from where I'm living now. And um, I stayed there and helped the guy for about four or five months and um, I was kind of interested again you know should I make my own family inside an eco village or should I be you know completely independent and again there were problems with that guy that um, he was he was quite of a quite an activist pushy ecologist very well meaning but um, upset a lot in his life by uh, what's happening in the world and, and trying a little too forcefully and um, aggressively to uh, to see and create change. And um, 
I it was a wonderful learning experience to be honest to be thrown in and well voluntarily I put myself into all these positions and became intimate with these people so I must thank them all um, along the way but um, you know have to make my own way and my own decisions and be my own boss so I, I left that place a little bit of a conflict um, but it was time to leave I um, through another friend that I'd met from there I uh, I found a flat to rent in the local city which to be honest was a, a massive contrast I'd never lived in a block of flats and um, always had at least some garden and I'd spent almost a year with like outside life making and constructing building destroy you know a very practical down-to-earth lifestyle and it was a bit of a, a contrast to be suddenly thrown into a into a into a block of flats um, but I was uh, doing a little bit of teaching, not that I really needed the, the income to teach English, but more um, to sort of integrate myself, learn a bit more Czech and, uh, and meet people. So I did that for a while, quickly realized that uh, teaching English to people who aren't really self-motivated or, or engaged isn't really my thing. I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm, I'm a wonderful teacher if somebody is passionate but um, if they just feel like they should, you know, to get a job or if they're not really interested, then um, I'm not going to push anybody, you know, and um, I, I don't believe in that kind of teaching model. So um, I, I gave up that. Actually, at the same time I was doing that, that was when I met my wife. And it was a very interesting meeting uh, through another mutual friend who just kept saying... You've got to meet Vera. You know, you, you just have to meet Vera. She's so lovely. She sings so beautifully. And she wants a family. She'll be perfect for you. And, you know, he, he kept saying that when I met him. But he he never arranged to, to get us to meet. And, you know, it seemed a bit strange to me. So I never pushed it. And um, the funny thing is he kept saying that to uh, my wife as well, to Vera. He kept saying, oh, you've got to meet Neil. He's really lovely, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I think she said, oh, and he's really rich, you know, and the funny thing is now when we reflect together, that actually put my wife off completely because uh, she didn't want to meet some rich, spoiled Englishman, you know, and actually um, she had some, some inclination that I was black and uh, she had some, a little bit of prejudice towards that, you know, or actually she said she had this image that I had a leather jacket and I was some leather jacketed black Englishman. <laughs> Which is very funny. But we did eventually meet. Um, and the guy invited me to his little birthday party. And, uh, and of course, Vera was there as well. And um, it was very funny because we both had the feeling that we, of course, will get married, have children together and be, be living together for many, many years to come. And that is exactly what happened, you know. Um, but... Uh, um, yeah, of course, he, he mixed up the telephone numbers when we when we asked him, can you give me her number? And she asked, can you give me his his number? That he gave us both the wrong number somehow. And we'd, we were waiting a, a week or two weeks and uh, surprised. Which was interesting. Uh, there's somebody on Mumble who, uh, who is it? It's Breeze, Breeze, who is having problems with his audio and can't hear. 
but um, he's not in my channel right now. Just a quick reminder, um, this is episode 7 of Dudmanovi, um, A Geek's Journey to Nature. And um, we are recording live using Mumble. Um, as I said before, we're about half an hour into the episode now. And I'm probably going a bit slower and drawing it out longer than I'd intended. But maybe we'll make it a, a two-part episode. Um, so um, you can catch this live as um, a nice guy there called Breeze tried to, but had problems with his Mumble audio and said he's looking forward to listening to the recording instead. So thank you very much there, Breeze. And um, but you just just come to the website dudmanovi.cz and um, the instructions are there on the left. There's a countdown to when the next live uh, recording will be. And if you've got any questions or you want to join in the conversation, we've got a a um, a we've got a what do you call it a we've got a little forum area over on the um, Linux Basics forum. I'll put a link in this show note and somehow integrate it into the dudmanovi.cz website. Anyone interested in how to pronounce the dudman dudmanovi.cz domain name? It is dudmanovi.cz, and um, that is our family name here in the Czech Republic. Czech Republic. It's a Czechized version of our family name. Um, I just mentioned that because on a recent episode, I think 122 of uh, Linux Basics, Dor said some very kind things about me and the uh, podcast, and he also said he wasn't sure how to pronounce it. So there's a quick help to you, Dor. And thanks a lot for all your help. You're, you're a good, funny guy. <laughs> Anyway, back on with the episode. On So I'm now in the Czech Republic. I've met my wife, and um, she is at that time studying a terribly difficult and stressful university. She's, she's a terribly determined young lady, and um, um, she was studying Japanese studies combined with English. And a Russian, I think, at the same <laughs> the same time. <laughs> she was very crazy. She spent two years in Japan, and she had just come back um, from Japan and was continuing with her studies when I met her. So, you know, uh, fate brought us together, and we were we were combined. But um, it was terribly stressful, and uh, I was just trying to help her with her English studies and be patient until she'd finished. Um, we both quickly realized that the best way to get to know each other, because we were a bit older at the time, we were both almost 30 or 28, 30, and we, we, we weren't ready for just messing about. We wanted to see, you know, is this the one? Will I marry you? You know, should we have children together or not? So we decided to, to move in together to, to save costs and to sort of test, you know, to, to know each other intensely and to test to see if we could tolerate each other. So we did that fairly quickly to be honest after about two weeks of meeting um, and you know I was really pleased because I could move out of that horrible um, block of flats which is, is called a panelak in English in Czech which literally means flats made from panels stuck together which is very funny and very true so uh, I escaped and we moved there and it was very nice very small place so uh, we had like one little room and the it was the top of the house so the the ceilings were so sloping in that you would bang your head you know if you stood up too quickly but we had love to fuel us you know and we were living on the fumes of love so it made it all worthwhile 
Anyway, so um, it was about a good four months while she was finishing her studies, and uh, then she'd had lined up a, a very well-paid job as an interpreter, a Japanese interpreter for a uh, Toyota, massive Toyota factory that was being bought in, built in the Czech Republic. So um, the problem was it's a ma- very male-orientated um, um, environment, and my wife is a short, soft girl, you know, and um it was very very um overwhelming to be honest and the uh the japanese culture that that imported and the the insecurities between the the new czech employees and the japanese culture because the uh, the czech employees were being treated like um kind of children they were being taught how to how to screw up screws in 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 plastic um fenders of cars and it was taking so long for them to get on with their actual work and to be like czech workers that they were used to that there was a lot of insecurities and conflicts and my poor little wife not then wife but to be was stuck in the middle of all this so she had a kind of a kind of a nervous breakdown a, a tension and uh, without any hesitation, I went and picked her up and brought her home and quickly then realized that, you know, if we're going to have a family, she didn't need to do that for the money. You know, I had I'd already budgeted and I had like five years of a uh, five year plan worked out that I, I didn't need to find a job for five years because the, the Czech Republic was um, really economically advantageous for me. I had some savings from for my well-paid job in England as a computer programmer, and I'd been pretty good at saving up. Um, and also, the house I'd sold, I was very lucky; it was sold at a at a profit. The the house prices just were magically up at that time. You know, I was stressed when I was selling it, thinking, "Is it going to suddenly plummet now? Is it going to plummet?" Because it seemed like it was artificially high, and I could then have have been in the negative. You know, but. I was lucky and it didn't and I had savings and I tried to schedule, sort of plan how long they would last and what I would spend my money on and I was living very, very cheaply at the time. So we, uh, God, I'm really drawing this out, so apologies, I hope this is still interesting. If you want this to be more interesting, come along and listen live and um, ask questions and interact and then I won't be tempted to draw it out so long. So there's a challenge out to all of you. Um, there was a guy today, Breeze, who tried, and uh, I challenge anybody else to try. <laughs> and it would also make it more interesting because because uh, I'm interested in, in listening to other people as well. Back on. We were about 35 minutes. I had a reminder in my left ear, a big bing bong that you couldn't hear five minutes ago, reminding me. Um, so, yeah. Carry on. Let's see. So we went and got a very cheap old Czech-made car so we could travel around and easily look for houses. More or less one of the first houses we found was... Um, because I'd, I already had in my mind that I wanted some kind of homestead. I was already inspired by some sort of organic vegetarian growing. They were like extreme macrobiotic vegans. I wasn't quite that extreme. I I didn't quite see it, but... I was always open and I was naive. I was happy to get inspirations and learn from people and sort of sort of integrate myself into into environments and then, you know, from what I see and hear try to judge if that's if that's, you know, sound or if it has a future or how do, how do those people live off the those the kind of fumes that that technology creates, you know? So 
I knew I needed a place with some land and space. So we found a place, and it was a pretty big, oldish homestead that needed fixing up. The uh, the old parents had died, and the, the young, now sort of 50-odd children, I think there were four children, they'd all moved off somewhere else and weren't interested in the house. And to be honest, it had really been left to disrepair. There were holes in the roofs, and... and um, we we decided fairly quickly we fell in love with the place it had massive gardens and it had about i think about 4000 square meters like directly connected to the land but the the biggest thing that i really liked was there was there was an apparent possibility to buy up to another 20,000 that's 2 hectares or about 4 acres of land which was the original sort of farming land connected with a homestead and that was right behind the um the actual homestead you know there's, there's a kind of pattern in the czech republic villages that you'd have like a, a central circle of, of houses and then at the back of each homestead sort of fanning out like a pie like a big circle you'd have each each of those homesteads the original ones would have a piece of land of course in uh, recent years last 50 100 years the uh, the children have of each generation have progressively sort of squeezed houses into the sort of front road facing land and then they've built land you know houses behind so it kind of becomes messed and mishmashed and, and squeezed but more more importantly the pressure on the on the land behind that was the original mainstay of the homestead is diminished or even just lost you know and then what with the in the what was it 1920s onwards or 1910 the pressure of socialism to unite all the all the land together and and basically have all the all the independent homesteaders working for the what was called the Yezader, which um, I'm not sure what that really means in Czech but basically the the um, the co-op farms you know that you you as a farmer you for the advantage of having access to machines and modern technologies you give up your land you allow the, the fields to all be joined you know no more no more um, hedge hedgerows in between them and individual paths you can maximize your your use of the land and you know increase the the manner which you you exploit and and apparently the profits um, I think if anybody looks into the details and uh, thinks about it ecologically, not that I'm a big eco ecologist in the extremist view, but um, you do haven't got to look far to see that it's it's really a, a misguided way. And uh, this will be a subject for a future episode. I, I won't uh, go down that rabbit hole too much because I really would ramble for a long time. But we bought that house very quickly and we kind of, I thought we had quite a good understanding with the owner that um, within a few years, you know, once we've demonstrated that we really need the land, it wouldn't be any problem to buy that extra two hectares, four acres. He seemed really nice. So we went and bought the land. In hindsight, we perhaps should have listened to... Um, when when we were buying the land, we were up in the solicitor's office. You know, we had our. In those times, you could still buy a land, buy buy a house by just getting all the cash out. So, uh, we, we went to the bank. We got, you know, I think it was about a million crowns. It cost us, which said about forty thousand crowns, something like that. Thirty thousand. I, I can't remember exactly, but it's about a million crowns. We we bought, took out the bank. We had in our, in our brown envelope. We go into the office. The the three, the two brothers and the sister, or the three brothers and the sister are there, and um, 
halfway through the negotiations or the sign of the contracts, the, the sister, the more sensitive of them, she collapses completely from sort of a hotness and dehydration or whatever. And, you know, they're all about 50, 60, 70 years old, these brothers and sisters. So, you know, they have to help her out. She only just manages to sign it. And then when we get outside, there's um, a clamp on our car. You know, we'd parked and we hadn't put a ticket or it expired because we'd taken so long. I don't know. So we had to phone the police. And, you know, my wife and I were just so excited because we finally, the first time we possessed something that was ours, you know. And we were so excited. We can be the bosses. You know, we can make our own mistakes or successes. Anyway, in, in hindsight, because of the way it went with the relationship with those people, and our sort of constant asking, so can we buy the land already? You know, we, we need it. We have two horses. We have two cows. We need the land. You know, we want some grazing area. They just wouldn't sell us the land. You know, we were we were already using the scythe extensively for all our harvesting of hay and, and maintaining land. So, you know, that was for all of those animals. And, um, you know, we had goats initially and we, we built up slowly. That's maybe another another episode. But... The long and short of it was that um, we were cutting lots of neighbours' lands, neighbours' gardens, and and doing that, it wasn't always possible to to cut it at a time that they wanted. You know, we had to cut it when it was when it was the next piece to cut, when it was the right time of year to cut. And you know, we weren't interested to maintain English lawns. We wanted to cut just two, maybe three times a year to make hay with. You know, the grass had to be a decent length. And most of the neighbours were very happy, but there was one piece of land where, you know, he, you know, we were relying on, upon it, and um, he he didn't really care for, he was pleased we were cutting it, but, you know, there wasn't the communication, and this just really reminded me that sort of bad dependency if the land isn't yours. You know, we had animals to feed. At that time... There was one big farmer in the area that we would buy hay from if we needed any extra. You know, when we first got the horses, we bought hay for them because we hadn't hadn't sort of accounted for, for for making hay for them, and we didn't have enough land to cut. But we were we were cutting in all the ditches, and you know, I was pulling it backwards and forwards, all with a hand cart. You know, at that time I didn't have a car or a trailer, or hadn't trained or got any horses to do the work for me, so. Well, one day I just came home and uh, really enough was enough. Me and my wife just decided if we can't buy the land, what is the point, you know? It was five years in already and we had just finished fixing the house, you know, new roofs. We had gradually moved from one room around the house. As we fixed individual rooms, we would move to the next room, you know, as we fixed... Um, upstairs we were living downstairs then we moved upstairs so we could fix downstairs you know we'd already had our first child and it was difficult to imagine moving somewhere else after doing all that you know but um, it was so critical to us to have our own land and to be in control that um, we just decided right let's go down on our bikes we'll go and see the the main boss of the the family and just just ask him are you ever going to sell us a land we went there and confronted him to be honest, we, we weren't polite at all because we, we wanted him to say no because, you know, we didn't expect that he would just turn around and, and say yes. And, um, of course, he said, no, I will never sell you the land. Never, it won't be yours. So we knew then and there that we had to do something else. Something else happened at the same time. There was another sort of piece of land that we could buy and... Um, 
it wasn't directly connected to our land. You know, it was like um, a few me, like maybe a hundred, two me, two hundred meters away. We couldn't see it from our homestead, but it was just one hectare. And we tried to negotiate with the ladies. There was like three old babki, three old ladies, grandmas who owned that, and we tried. Or rather, an old lady and her two daughters, I think. But we tried to negotiate with them, and they were all for it. They were so excited, and we, we almost got to negotiation. And then my wife just phoned, and they said, No, no, we, we've decided not to sell it. And we were, like, flabbergasted, shocked. What, why? Why? Well, it turned out that they, they decided that they could make about 20 times the amount of money if they sell it for building plots instead. You know, so not only were we annoyed that uh, we couldn't get it, but we were doubly frustrated that, well, no more damn little modernized houses with more town people, you know. Nothing against you town people, but it's just in, in the long run, you'll probably realize that you need a bigger garden, and it'd be better if you, you even if you don't utilize the land now, build a house with, with a large area which is yours, you know, and don't be too close to neighbors because... Um, the way I see it is uh, we'll all need more land um, in in the future, you know, to be more independent. That's a subject for another podcast. But um, so with those two things going on, we decided we've got to find a new house. So uh, independently, my wife and I on separate computers, we, uh, we searched and searched. And the Internet was amazing because... Um, because we, uh, you, you know, they had pictures, descriptions. You hardly had to visit places, so we could search hundreds of different homesteads. And I found this particular one, and um, it looked like ruins from a castle, you know. It looked very beautiful. Um, it said it wasn't inhabitable, and that was a bit of a problem, because at that point already we had, you know, one child. We had an inhabitable house, you know. It wasn't perfect, but, you know, we were used to it, and it was safe and warm and everything. We had an inhabitable house, and um, we also had, you know, cows, goats, sheep, <laughs> horses. So we had to find a place where we could move, where they, we immediately they could live as well, you know. And we had all, all the husbandry equipment and lots of stuff. So it wasn't a matter of just packing some boxes and making sure it was close to our place of work. Um, we had to move everything. The animals was more complicated. So, anyway, we, we went to visit. Now, I'm thinking I might save this for the next episode because we're already at 46 minutes and um, I'm just going to mention a few more things about uh, when we bought that first house. Um, it was funny, you know, you go to look at a house and we're probably very naive people, you know, and uh, we were just in love with the house. You know, it had great big thick stone walls and there were, there were like, um, there was a massive barn for storing hay. It needed fixing, but, um, uh, you know, it was very historic and up in the loft they'd left a lot of the historic machines and, you know, they basically had no value. It had like historical it's like a value of interest to us um, but most of it was uh, was unusable and really just fit for some sort of uh, museum just for, for entertainment you know and there's plenty of those in Czech anyway because there was so much of this stuff up in people's lofts but um, the interesting thing that we never noticed when we came was there was there was no running water in the house you know we only noticed after we bought it and uh, you might laugh but um you know, we just took it for granted that there was that that was there because there was an old lady who was living up to a year before we we came and had a look. It had been empty, you know, a year, 
and there was also no toilet, you know, inside or outside. There was a kind of like a, a bashed down, knocked down um, sort of relic of um, some old outside la toilet, but um, so they'd obviously done a lot of clearing up, and um, I think they'd cleared up any relics of uh, an old outside compost toilet now I think about it there was probably some old wooden thing and a, and a hole that they'd buried but the, um, when we when we spoke to neighbours after we'd bought it that they described how much material and wood was in the yard outside and that it was a real mess so they must have tidied all of that up before um, we'd moved there or we'd bought it rather or they tried to sell it but that was just a, an interesting tidbit that um Actually, there was a kind of sink in the kitchen, and we just assumed, we didn't look carefully, that there was a tap. But there were no taps coming out the wall, and the only way to collect water was a bucket <laughs> underneath the, the sink. <laughs> but again, the, the passion of love and excitement and newness carried us along, and to be honest, still does today. So... That's the end of episode one, I think, of, uh, what did I call it? Episode one of A Geek's Journey to Nature. How a computer programmer with, uh, to be honest, a love for nature, but no experience or no sort of real practical understanding of what it means, tried to work things out. Uh, quickly, an another thing, we were, I was also very naive during those periods, just assuming that all the villagers around would be interested in, you know, cutting grass with a scythe or, you know, spinning wool with by hand or, you know, cooking honest um, sourdough bread or, you know, traditional ways of preparing foods. I, I just assumed that they would be interested in that, but... Um, I, I, you know, and so, so I would, we, we would, when we first moved there, we'd be invited to people's house, and I, I, we would share with them our excitement, like as town people just coming to this, how we were excited, and they would maybe politely sort of nod, but I think inside them they're thinking, "You're crazy," you know, "What do you want animals for? <laughs> don't, just buy a jumper. Don't consider making it yourself," you know, and and you don't want to keep a pig; it's too much work, you know. You can just buy it cheaper. And um, I think I've come to realise that a lot of people in the... A lot of them, not everybody, you know, I don't mean to put everyone into the, the same bucket, but a lot of people are doing it through... Doing the old things through kind of um, inertia, you know? And maybe they don't have the education for a better job or more money, so it's a way to make things a little bit cheaper. And um, maybe often it's the older people which are still keeping the animals or you know, want to keep a pig, but once they die, you know, the younger people haven't really, not in all cases, haven't really been integrated into looking for them or having that passion towards keeping them. Saying that, there is a big growing trend of people, especially people who come to our courses, where we do courses on how to use a scythe and cutting grass with ease, you know, for, for men and women and children dispelling the myth that you've got to be somehow macho and strong to do it you know and it's an exhaustion because uh, it doesn't have to be but um we you know one of the advantages of doing these courses are uh, we meet so many people just for a brief time you know one day and we we get to hear about the things they're doing you know and we've got a real feeling that there are so many people in the czech republic or even worldwide who are excited you know passionately excited 
you know, not for a sense of profit, not for a sense of, I don't know, but just for a sense of excitement to see what's possible and get in touch with nature, you know. So that's that's a great thing that's happening. But a lot of them are really, um, thanks to Western A. Price and the real comprehension of what is healthy food, people are returning to, to appreciate that uh, keeping an animal, even if you intend to kill it, or if you're exploiting it by taking milk, and maybe if if it gives birth to a cow, a bull, that you you will kill it. But you try and in a in a respectful way to kill it in a fast way. You know, and don't send it off to the slaughters and let it be stressed. Do it at home. Learn how to do it yourself in a quick way. You know, kind of say a blessing before you do it and thank thank the creature for his life and what you know. There's a tear in my eye as I say that. Because I really mean it, and um, you know, to to integrate what we can exploit and use from animals, but making sure that uh, we serve them and they serve us—a real mutual relationship of of serving each other. Anyway, we're up to about fifty minutes here on the podcast, and uh, come back next week for part two of a geek's journey to nature, where I'm going to complete. When we moved into our new homestead, which we've been we've been here for now five years, and uh, basically we started again from scratch, making a new homestead, fixing it all and <laughs> struggling. <laughs> so, in the last ten, seven, ten minutes, I, I wanted to quickly mention again this whole thing about technology. Um, I'd meant this week to reformalize. The, the structure of the podcast, you know, um, I need to get some sound bites in there, really, just to remind myself and listeners the the sort of motivation. I'm not quite sure how to do it yet, but you know, this podcast is about technology. It's a tech podcast, but for me, I'm gonna I'm calling it real tech, you know, because I I was thinking about this. I listened to lots of tech podcasts, you know, computer and programming and Linux and you know, that kind of tech, gadgets, you know. And uh, I just quickly looked at the, the Wikipedia definition and I've got it here at the top of my website and it says, you know, technology is a making, modification, usage and knowledge of tools, machines, techniques, crafts, systems, methods of organization in order to solve a problem. So I want to emphasize in this podcast, um, you know, technology needs, if it's going to be good technology, it needs to solve a problem and that technology is about making, modifying and using and knowledge, you know, of tools. It's not just about, oh, somebody else has the knowledge and they will sell us something. It's not just about, a gal- uh, you know, some gadget you buy. It's been my experience in the last few years. I buy a gadget like an iPhone. You know, I'm trying to be open. I, I, there was one point where I was, you know, trying to get rid of all these gadgets because they just create stress, and I, I was frustrated that they weren't serving their, you know, who was serving? Was I serving them or were they serving me? I was spending all my time just trying to get them to work how I wanted them to or how I thought they should. It's still my feeling quite a lot of the time that we're being treated like beta testers, you know? I, I love technology gadgets like the like the next geeky gadget loving person. <laughs> but um, being a bit older and with a family now, I have other priorities, and uh, and I need to make sure that uh, anything I'm using serves my greater purpose, you know, and the greater purpose of of um, humans coexistence with nature, you know, how a family integrates together. 
relations with the animals, you know, our, our ability to get the animals to collaborate with us, not through fear, but through collaboration and good leadership. This is something else I would like to talk about in another episode, is uh, techniques and knowledge and tools for for horse training and, and dealing with animals that I learned which actually extend completely and very well to humans and children especially and which I've been using I feel quite successfully on, on my own wife and my children and uh, all of those things I call technology you know and according to this definition in Wikipedia are technology so so kind of the purpose of this podcast is to to highlight this perversion of the term technology towards things we can just buy yeah, I'm not against people making profit, but um, I'm tired, for one, of being a beta tester. Although I, I enjoy testing and playing with things, um, I just think we should be honest with what it is. You know, if I buy some some computer and it's sold as a development board and, you know, you can tweak with stuff, that's great. But if I'm, if I'm sold something as a finished product, then I want to know it's a finished product. Wow. You can hear the music coming in, and um, if I'm going to be good at doing this, I should really respect that uh, two-minute music before the end. So, before it really forces me out, and let's have a quick look. I've got a few more minutes. I'm going to quickly mention about Ubuntu. Um, After last week's sort of semi-rant... I didn't want to be too unfair, I'm not sure how it sounded, but um, I've still been looking into understanding how distributions work, you know, whether it's derived from Debian, you know, Ubuntu is derived from Debian, and then there are so many derivatives of Ubuntu. Um, I started a few different threads over on the forums at Linux Basics, really trying to understand how these things are. You know, I was looking at, um, was it though, the... um, some licensing trademarks it was called like a trademark agreement for the ubuntu and i'm i'm not completely sure i agree with or understand it or that it's really really a very good um trademark description there you know i've got a lot of questions as i read it i have the feeling that they are actually restricting what you're allowed to do to the to the um, derived works from Debian. You know, they take it from Debian, and I feel that they are actually restricting what you can do. There didn't seem to be much mention of, you know, there are no restrictions as long as you share the source code. Because it was my understanding with the GPL, you're able to sell stuff, you're able to make money from it, but you must pass on the same freedoms that you got you know, when you got the works. And for that to be true, it's my understanding you just need to share the source code. You know, the whole trademark issue using the Ubuntu trademark, I think that's completely valid. You know, that is owned by Ubuntu. It was a surprise for me that um, anything Ubuntu, not just the U, but anything with Ubuntu, so that's Xubuntu, Lubuntu, Kubuntu, all of those are trademarks of Ubuntu. That is my understanding. I could be completely wrong and I'm happy to be corrected. But it made me look at it, you know. I'm running out of time now, just another 30 seconds, so we'll draw this to an end. But I did have some interesting discovery, which I'll talk about, or go and look on the forums, about um, Ubuntu's use of something called, I think, the Popularity Tool, Popularity Contest, which is a Debian package, 
and um, it didn't seem to me that Ubuntu are following, following the rules um, that uh, Debian I'm not sure Debian is forcing you but uh, but saying so that's going to be a discussion for next week's episode hopefully now we'll see how this information the muse is coming in and we're off come back next week for dudmanovi.cz and thank you very much for listening <laughs>